0: Welcome to Encounter God's Truth. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and today's program reminds us about the importance of catastrophism. Dr. John Whitcomb prepared it 10 years ago, marking the 50th anniversary of the creationist classic, The Genesis Flood. We're bringing you this original series once again, now to commemorate the 60th anniversary of that groundbreaking book. This is a somber weekend in the United States as we remember the attacks of September 11, 2001. Let's pray for our nation at this time, even as we thank God for our many blessings.
1: Thanks so much, Wayne. And I invite you, dear friends, to join with us in this fabulous study of what I call biblical catastrophism. Now, of course, evolutionists don't like that idea of catastrophism when things happen rapidly. They want millions and millions of gradual changes, you see, and that's what's being taught in our schools across this nation and around the world, in the form of theistic evolution, the day-age theory, the gap theory, all these false ideas. What is biblical catastrophism? It's how the Genesis Flood changed the world forever, washed away millions of years of supposed evolutionary geologic timetable history. Yes, the Genesis Flood is the key that unlocks the mystery of how the present world that we are live in actually came into existence. Adam and Eve were here at the beginning of the world, not millions of years after the world appeared. And the Genesis Flood, which occurred less than 2,000 years after Adam and Eve were created, was the divine mechanism, instrument, to transform the whole surface of the world. High mountains filled with billions and trillions of fossilized plants, marine creatures, and other animals. Amazing discoveries are coming to light of how recent that was, how catastrophic that water catastrophism was. So friends, we invite you to join with us in this remarkable perspective of God's revelation of truth on how the world was changed forever in the days of Noah, who with his family in that ark, floating across months and months of a shoreless ocean, actually lived through the catastrophe that changed the surface of the world forever please join us friends for this remarkable insight god has given us in how our present world came into being as we actually see it today
0: well indeed dr wickham will take us to genesis 1 and 2 to show us that catastrophism is the key to the past that is we can only understand all that god wants us to know about how he formed this world originally if we grasp the significance of the flood that the Lord sent to judge the world in Noah's day. In fact, this teaching is so important, you may want to listen to it again later at sermonaudio.com forward slash Whitcomb. And with that in mind, let's get right to the message. Here's Dr. Whitcomb.
1: Greetings, friends, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and as we shall see, our Creator. Yes, thank you, Lord Jesus, for telling us everything you did at the beginning of the world, as well as how it's going to end. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. How did the world begin? Well, I was a godless evolutionist at Princeton University in the summer and fall of 1942, until finally, in the mercy of God, uh, an evangelist, a soul winner, became my spiritual father, Dr. Donald Fullerton, who had graduated from Princeton back in 1913. And he came back from Afghanistan and India as a missionary in partly broken health, and asked permission of the university to teach the Bible at Murray Dodge Hall, the student center of that campus. Some of his disciples invited me, urged me, prayed for me that I might come to hear the Bible being taught by Dr. Fullerton. I was amazed at his skill in handling the Bible. One night in February, 43, just a few months later after I first met him, he invited himself to my dorm room to show me from the Bible who Jesus Christ really is and what he did on the cross and what he did in his empty tomb, resurrected from the dead, in order to save me forever from the penalty and even the power of sin. I believed my life was changed. But you see, at that point, friends, I was very confused about origins, the ultimate origin of the world. I had been raised in a godless home. I was taught at the university in the courses on paleontology and historical geology, that the world and th- living things are millions and billions of years old. I-, I just was absolutely obsessed with that idea. So my soul winner, my spiritual father, uh, simply introduced to me a theory that was very popular back at that time, in the 40s and 50s, even the 60s and 70s, called the Gap Theory of Genesis one and two. And that theory said all the fossils were buried long before Adam and Eve ever were created. And they were walking, therefore, on a vast cemetery filled with the fossils of extinct animals they would never see alive. How amazing! And when when and how were all those creatures buried, smashed, fossilized? Well, they thought they found a verse that explained it. Genesis 1-2. Now listen carefully. 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth... Verse 2, and the earth became without form and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. The idea was that long, long ages before Adam and Eve were created, God smashed the world by a global catastrophe and everything was buried and fossilized and darkness came upon the world. And then millions of years later, in six literal days, God recreated the world, and Adam and Eve then appeared on the scene for the first time. Well, that was a very popular view because we thought, well, we can take the literal days of creation and still have uh, the geologic timetable of evolutionism. We don't believe in evolution, but we believe that the world and its living things are hundreds of millions of years old. But finally, after I was trained at Grace Theological Seminary, Winona Lake, Indiana, in my basic theology and Bible studies. Uh, I was invited after I graduated to join the faculty and to teach the Old Testament. And in God's mercy, I stayed there 39 years to teach the Bible. Now, amazing things happened When I started teaching Genesis, therefore, and presenting the gap theory, it it sounded more and more stilted and and, uh, artificial. It just didn't ring true, and some of my students felt the same way. And in the providence of God, two years after I started teaching, Henry M. Morris appeared on our campus to make a presentation at the American Scientific Affiliation meeting that year on our campus, September 1953. And he explained the significance, the magnitude, the effects of a mountain-covering year-long flood in the days of Noah. He pointed out hydrodynamically, Millions and billions of creatures could be rapidly buried in superimposed layers, like you see in the Grand Canyon, within months with enough water. He was a hydrodynamic engineer. Enough water moving fast enough could lay those billions of creatures down in fossil formations on top of one another. And then as the mountains rose and the continents after the flood, there was an outwash, you see, of trapped inland waters that gouged their way through to the ocean and left these strata visible, like in the Grand Canyon. I had never heard of such a thing before. And that fall of 1953, I communicated to Dr. Morris that he had convinced me that, uh, that the gap theory was impossible, or the day age theory that put long millions of years of Earth history and animal history before Adam and Eve were created. And so I said, Thank you, God, for this opportunity to rethink the whole issue. So I told Dr. Morris that I was going to write my doctoral dissertation on the subject of the Flood. So for four more years, I looked up all the passages of the Bible dealing with the Flood, its magnitude, its effects, its significance, and wrote a 450-page doctoral dissertation on the Genesis Flood. By that time, 1957, Henry Morris and I agreed to co-author a book on this subject, which four years after that finally came to light, the Genesis Flood in 1961, 50 years ago. And I say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to rethink this whole issue and to see the flood, the Genesis Flood, properly understood, washes away millions and billions of years of supposed earth history. So we see the fossils came after Adam and Eve were created, not millions of years before. 1,656 years after Adam was created came the greatest catastrophe the world had ever seen since the curse. And I said, thank you, Lord. Now help me to understand what you really meant by what you said. Now listen, friend, to what Jesus had to say about the age of the world. He said in Matthew 19.4, now listen carefully. He said, have you not read that he who created them, that's Adam and Eve, from the beginning made them male and female. Not millions and billions of years after the world came in, but from the beginning, they were here. Amazing. And, of course, the Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of the book of Romans, puts it this way, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Now listen carefully. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Now watch carefully. Who clearly saw the creative work of God? Adam and Eve. And when did they see that? At the creation of the world. Not billions of years after the world was uh, somehow... Brought into existence so in addition to all of that listen to what john says in his first letter john chapter 3 verse 8 the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning really but we know from genesis he didn't sin against god till after adam and eve were created perhaps a few days a few weeks at the most and then he appeared on the earth to win the king of the world, Adam, to himself, and reached him through his wife, Eve, and reached her through the serpent. So all this happened when? At the beginning, at the beginning, at the beginning. And I had never realized that before. So now when you turn back to Genesis 1, it all makes better sense. Because day after day in the creation narrative, it says God saw what he had made and it was, very, it was good. It was good. It was good, 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 good. And finally, at the end of the chapter, Genesis 131, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. It hadn't been wrecked, ruined, smashed, judged, fossilized. No, it was everything was still very good. Nothing had died. It was a harmonious, beautiful, perfect world. And I say, Lord, I never really noticed that before. Over and over, God says that. So, what do you do then with Genesis 1-2? You do what the text says to do, take it literally. Now listen, Genesis 1-1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. It didn't become that way. It was created in a condition of formlessness and emptiness. I mean, it was uninhabitable. No humans could live on a shoreless ocean in total darkness. But be careful here. Nothing was wrecked, ruined, or judged. Satan hadn't fallen, you see. And everything was what? Beautiful and perfect, but incomplete. That's the key idea. In Genesis one, everything in heaven above and earth beneath, all the ocean, 330 million cubic miles of liquid water, the atmosphere, everything inside this planet was perfect by the creative hand of God. Then it was, then it was, that God, step by step, filled what was empty, you see, and formed what was formless. So that finally, when Adam and Eve were created, it was a beautifully finished, furnished world system. So God saw everything he had made, Genesis one thirty one, and it was very good. And I say, well, thank you, Lord. That absolutely makes sense. And all early Christians, all Jews from ages past, took those days to be literal 24-hour days that did not have a catastrophe preceding them. So the gap theory, so-called, of Genesis 1-2 has proven to be false. I have written my reasons, all the reasons why the gap theory fails us, in the final chapter of my book called The Early Earth, how God extricated me from that confusion and helped me to see Biblical catastrophism through the Genesis Flood was the key, and now we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the publication of the Genesis Flood book co-authored with Henry Morris. Yes, he's in glory now with his Lord, but we're trying to honor his memory and and honor the Lord himself for heading, helping us to have this insight into the magnitude and significance of the greatest water catastrophe the world has ever seen or ever will. Now, this is uh, commemorated, isn't it, in Great Nature Psalm 104. Listen to what God says. He just assumes we have masterminded the magnitude of the flood from Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Listen to what the psalmist said about this. Psalm 104, verse 6. Thou didst cover it, that is the earth, with the deep, to home, as with a garment, like God flung a whole blanket of water over this earth. But there's one thing God wants to emphasize— Of all the details Genesis tells us about the duration of the flood, the ark project, the various stages and steps of the ending of the flood, etc., there's one thing God wants us to know for sure, namely this. The waters were standing above the mountains, a mountain-covering flood. You say, my, how could that happen? I mean, this must have taken millions of years. No, no, listen to this. Verse 7, at thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The waters rushed away to newly deepened ocean basins in the final months of the year-long flood, the final seven months after the ark was grounded. And then what happened? Listen carefully. Verse 8, the mountains went up, rose, and the valleys or basins sank down. So newly deepened ocean basins that God pushed down tens of thousands of feet down. Deeper than they ever were before, to allow for what reservoirs for waters that had covered the mountains of the world, the pre flood mountains were lower than they are now, because the mountains that rose after the flood reached tens of thousands of feet into the sky, in the Himalayas, even 29,000 feet. Amazingly higher mountains, amazingly deeper ocean basins. So, where did all this water go to? When God said, At thy rebuke, they fled. And they hurried away. And the answer is the end of verse 8. They hurried away to the place which thou didst establish for them, these newly deepened ocean basins. Thou didst set a boundary, now listen, a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. There never will be another universal flood. That's the rainbow covenant, you remember, of Genesis 9. Whenever a great storm of water comes, covers a region of the world, and then the sun comes out. You see trillions of spherical water droplets refracting the solar radiation into a beautiful spectrum of color. I'll never forget in France, back in the late 1980s, when after a huge storm in south-central France, we saw a rainbow from one end of heaven to another. I wonder, what the average Frenchman think of that rainbow? Because they love color, they love science, They may have thought, what a beautiful demonstration of spherical droplets refracting solar radiation. True, but that's not the message. The message is what? There never will be a universal flood. There have been thousands of limited local regional ones, but never again a global mountain-covering deluge of water. And I say, well, thank you, Lord, for helping me to realize this. Because that transforms, as I've said before, my whole approach to Genesis chapter 1. If a flood covered the world and laid down those fossils, as we shall see, God willing, in the next couple times, that transforms our whole approach to origins. The earth is not millions of years old, to say nothing of billions. It's only a few thousand years old. And I say, Lord, that's an amazing revolution of thought on earth history. And the significance of what we see everywhere in the fossil record. So I say now, Lord, help us to understand. Therefore, what you meant by what you said in Genesis chapters one and two—a newly, freshly created world system, in which nothing had died, nothing was distorted, sin had never happened in the human heart—it was a very good world. It was a perfect, the only perfect universe there will ever be. Angels hadn't even fallen yet with Satan. There were no demons. Human beings were still perfect, sinless. And I say, Lord, I'd love to have a videotape, a DVD, an insight into what that perfect, perfect world was really like. But help me to be satisfied with your assurance that someday on this earth, yes, on this earth, there'll be a perfect government under Jesus perfect education, we won't be taught evolutionism anymore. No, no. We'll be taught biblical creationism, biblical catastrophism, and God be praised, biblical redemption and restoration of the world. So, friend, I ask you, I invite you to join with me as we will continue searching the early chapters of Genesis especially on the true significance and magnitude and effects of of the greatest catastrophe of water this world has ever seen or ever will see. And I say thank you God for what you taught us that we might understand these truths and share with others.
0: Catastrophism is the key. Now, Dr. Wickham, you certainly are known for your study and teaching on creation and the flood from the book of Genesis. So let me ask you today, what is the main problem with trying to harmonize Genesis 1 with the geologic timetable of evolution?
1: Wayne, that is a major issue in handling the Word of God. For over 150 years, Christians have been pressured to somehow stretch out the events of Genesis 1 to cover hundreds of millions of years to harmonize somehow with the geologic timetable of evolutionism, but but take a look at Genesis chapter one. The order of events is the opposite of that of evolution. You you start off in Genesis one with uh, with uh, trees growing on the dry land, Genesis one eleven, but not that's on the third day. But not until the fifth day do you have any marine creatures. Evolution has marine creatures, of course, millions, hundreds of millions of years before trees grew on the continents. Uh, Look, you have the earth first, and then you have the sun, moon, and stars three days later. How could that be? That's the opposite of every evolutionary idea, the Big Bang and other compromising views that have been imposed upon the clear order of events in Genesis chapter 1. How do you have... Whales created first, and land mammals later. Whales on day five, land mammals from which they supposedly evolved, not till day six. The opposite of evolutionary thinking. Uh, How do you have birds first on day five, and reptiles on day six? Birds supposedly evolving out of reptiles. You see, point by point, step by step, God makes it clear that everything he said about the order of events in the creation of the world is the opposite of the evolutionary view. Let's uh, say this with a little touch of humor. Don't you think God was surprised to discover that people would someday believe in evolutionism? Well, of course not. He knew ahead of time, and I like to think that he made it crystal clear in Genesis chapter 1 that any harmonization effort between what he said actually happened within six literal 24-hour days, and the order in which they happen is hopelessly contradictory to the theory of evolution. And I say, well, thank you, Lord, for helping me see that you can't harmonize two opposite systems of thinking. And I was an evolutionist myself uh, in my early life, my first 18 years. And, And at Princeton University, along with all the other students studying historical geology, and paleontology. We were told this happened uh, 600 million years ago, and then the dinosaurs became extinct 70 million years ago, and this and that, as if we have a completely infallible, revealed, inspired account of the order of events and the duration of events. No, no, no. Nobody knows how many years these things took, because the Institute for Creation Research, for example, has done a massive project called the RATE Project, showing that these so-called ages that are assigned to fossils and rocks are not accurate at all. The world was designed and created thousands of years ago, not millions or billions. And I say, well, thank you, Lord, for helping me to see that, because now I have a handle on the basic issues that we face when we look at the opening chapter of the precious, infallible Word of God. You see, this is the foundation of, of everything, isn't it, friends? And if you can twist, stretch, manipulate, reinterpret these clear statements, here's what happened on day one, day two, day three, one day after another. Specific revelation of timing and sequence of events. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to see how it all happened, in what order. That I can therefore pray for my friends who are Christians, yes, and have been deeply influenced by evolutionary thinking that they can come clean and clear with God as the teacher on how the world began. None of my professors at Princeton University were here when the world began. They didn't see anything ever evolve anywhere ever. But God was there. He does not lie. And I want to believe exactly what he said in the opening chapter of the only book he's ever written, the Bible.
0: Thank you, Dr. Whitcomb, and thank you for listening today to Encounter God's Truth, a production of Whitcomb Ministries. Our goal is simply to bring you the clear truths of Scripture every week on this broadcast. We urge you to support this station that you're hearing it on and let them know that you are blessed by this program. For more information about our ministry and to find many more resources by Dr. Whitcomb, visit us online at whitcombministries.org, sermonaudio.com forward slash whitcomb, and Facebook.com forward slash Whitcomb Ministries. Next week, we'll begin to see how catastrophism is the key to the present. Until then, may God bless you through His Word, which is true from the beginning to the end.